0: Gonna need that extended warranty on it for the price of on the house. Hmm?
1: That I can't do.
0: I don't be a Negro, be my nigga. All right? Help
1: me out. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I ain't nobody's nigga.
0: Well, I mean, you somebody's nigga wearing this nigga tie.
1: Now you're being condescending. See? Mm-hmm. You've been warned, all right? Let's move forward amicably.
0: Okay, well, check this out, though. First of all, you're throwing too many big words at me. Okay? Now, because I don't understand them, I'm gonna take them as disrespect. Watch your mouth and help me with the
1: sale see see now you found yourself a nigger you was looking for a nigger nigger here now see okay. today's forecast dark and cloudy a chance of drive-by you want to go i suggest you move back then Nick fire off oh what are you gonna do what are you
0: gonna do mr floor manager go get him tiger
1: this shit just wait, wait, wait. got ripped. What you gonna do, bitch? I'm gonna tell you hey, what. Look, I'm gonna look, tell you what, what, what I'm gonna do. You know Luke and Perry look, 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 look. from 20th and 25th? You ever heard of Rolling 20s, nigga? Mm-hmm. Since I was 16, nigga. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Frosty. You know what I'm saying? Spoon. Nigga, okay. we fuck dwarves in the ass. Nigga, this dwarf here don't gotta be taller. Pull a trigger off of somebody's face. Okay. Nigga. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. nigga, Back up. What's up? Hey, what? Hey, what? Well, what? Welcome to Smart Tech. Hey, what?
0: Is this, is this your boy? You? Yeah, nigga,
1: we will both mash you. What? Hey, what? How can we Where you
0: at?
1: No, no, no. He don't need no help. He's already been served. I served him. He's taken care of. you a little slow, but he got it see what he thought was he could come up in here and make the rules, but now he see that Jay make the rules in smart tech, that I run this bitch, and now he about to bounce. It's your boy? Yeah, that's my boy, We were the same smart tech. You just got fucked up with him. Both y'all niggas gonna get clapped up when I get back. Both of y'all niggas. What what did I do? It don't fucking matter. Yeah, well, aim high, Willis. Aim high. (laughs)
2: <laughs> what you guys were just listening to was a clip from 40-Year-Old Virgin, uh, starring none other than the amazing Kevin Hart, and our guest today, we're very excited to have him on the guest today, uh, Romney Malco is on the show. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, he has been an amazing talent for years, A, being in that movie, but also being on shows like Weeds, uh, Million Little Things, uh, and he has a brand new project that he is now moving from just acting into writing and directing uh, and producing and putting on his own project uh, called Tijuana Jackson Purpose Over Prison, which comes out this Friday. So we're recording this on the 27th. By the time this episode comes out, it'll be Tuesday. So the Friday before will have been released. So the movie is out now. You can check it out on On Demand, all sorts of different outlets. Um, We'll put the links below. But Very excited to have him on the show today. Uh, Anytime that we get a working actor on the show, someone that is doing television, meaning that they are consistently out there working on their craft and putting things together, I cannot wait to get into it with him. And I know he's got a lot to talk about. And I'm curious, from a director's standpoint, I'm curious, like, what is it like being an actor in your own movie, right? How often do we see... Um movies like um that are directed by the lead character, and I've always been kind of confused by that. I'm like, how can you direct your own performances? How can you be uh objective enough? Um, so I, w- I really want to ask him a bunch of these questions because I've seen clips from his movie, whatever he does, it works, man. The movie's hysterical, so I' uh, very excited to have him on the show and very excited to have you guys listening and back and I've promised. That we've got bigger and better guests on the show and today we deliver right are we delivering today or are we delivering today i um, very excited and thanks to all the folks that made this episode happen the people behind the scenes and uh you the listener and you guys have been suggesting and pushing people on us so you're like hey we'd like to have these people on the show well we deliver for you um, and as always thank you to those of you who continue to follow us on instagram whether you're following my personal account at MikePetche on Instagram or you're following the podcast account, that's in Love with the Process pod, that's in Love of the Process P-O-D on Instagram. There you guys have been reaching out, suggesting episodes, giving feedback on episodes. And if you notice, I repost anytime you guys repost, right? I give out, I give shout outs when it's needed. Um, and uh, we have a bunch of surprises that happen on Instagram all the time. This week, I went on and did Uh, a live in instagram live um because you guys wanted it i had a few of the fans ask for it and uh i was surprised i was actually surprised in the middle of the uh, live feed that uh, killer mike wanted to connect and literally just connected and we we talked for a couple minutes on instagram uh he's a great dude i gotta get him on the show so if you're listening mike you need to come on the show um but we'll work together on something as uh the future uh, allows us to as we get out of this prison sentence that we're all in uh, and we're able to go out and do and create new stuff. So in the meantime, I uh, hope you guys are staying sane. How are things with you? As we know, um, end of July is approaching, which means unemployment from the federal government is going to run out. So we'll see how uh, folks survived with that. Um, we should do an episode. I I think I'll do an episode sort of talking about how to drum up work because look, it's a scary time. It's a scary time for all of us. It's a scary time for us filmmakers, uh, and actors and everybody that literally requires to be around people to make stuff. Um, and uh being out here in California, California has really done kind of a dog shit job. Um, <laughs> keeping COVID at bay. So it's even tougher out here. Uh, But if you are a freelancer, if you're a freelance photographer or a cinematographer or even a filmmaker, there are companies out there that are still doing really well and people are spending money and buying things and they need advertisements made and they need um, social media content made. And so if you're clever and you're creative about how you put that stuff together, um, you can still be getting work and uh, maybe we'll do a show on that. Let me know. Write to us on Instagram, right? Let me know. Do you guys want a show or an episode where we talk about how to sort of drum up your own little bit of work? Um, because we can get into that if you want. Or if you want, you know, an episode about our favorite movies, let us know too. I'm curious to see where we're at with you guys. Um, <clears throat> but in the meantime, let's get ready for today's show. Let's not draw it out any further. Um, very excited to talk to Romney, and cannot wait for you guys to hear about his new project. And, oh, hey, look, my phone's ringing, Liam. Whew, I did it. What a piece of shit. You know what? It's on silent. It was on silent. <laughs> um, but, um, let's get right to it. I'm delaying the episode long enough. You know the deal go find those noise-canceling headphones, find a nice comfy place to sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Ramani, thanks for being on the show, my friend.
1: Hey man, thank you for having me. It really is not an honor to like, just that anybody would want someone like me on their show. I guess-
2: Oh, stop it. I
1: guess (laughs) good (laughs) karma, right? Isn't always the thing.
2: Well, look, man, I've been a fan of your work for years. Um, I followed you on Weeds. Uh, Of course, the infamous uh, scene from uh, A 30-Year-Old Virgin, like that has become a meme that is continuously being used- all over the internet. Um, I've loved your stuff. I've loved you as an actor. And I'm fascinated about uh, your transition into directing. And I really want to get into a lot of this on the show. But let me just first say thank you for taking the time of being with us today.
1: No, man, um, it's really sincerely my pleasure. And like, no matter what um, they say about you, I'm grateful to be here. Also, Your audience is very sarcastic. Your audience is not only sarcastic. They are writers and creators and producers and and, and film buffs. They're going to give you shit for calling it 30-year-old virgin. I just wanted to put that
2: out there. that's right. (laughs) Yes, they are. That's right. It is 40-year-old virgin. (laughs) And I appreciate you calling me out on that. (laughs) My pleasure, bro. My pleasure. (laughs) Oh, what a piece of shit. Uh, uh, So... uh, I'm very excited about uh, your new project. Let's get right into that first. Um, the Tijuana Jackson movie, Purpose of a Prison. Uh, they, I didn't know about it until um, I had spoke to you people and they sent me over the trailer and I was really excited about seeing the piece. I haven't seen it yet. I've just seen the trailer and promotional material. Um, but this is based on a character that you've been working on for a while, right? This was something that you did years ago for Funny or Die, isn't it?
1: Even yeah, I I, I two thousand something. I think I think two thousand seven. I did it for Funny or Die. Um, but Funny or Die had a series with HBO called um, uh, uh, Funny or Die Presents. So we they mm-hmm. put together like a half hour series of sketches, and this character was in like three of them. Um, Andrew Steele. It's like one of his favorite things was this character. So he was like, we would love it if you'd put it in there. Uh, mm-hmm. But prior to that, I had started doing this character and recording myself in nineteen
0: ninety nine
1: with camcorders and then around uh around that time i started putting it on 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 uh, my MySpace, and then eventually onto youtube and you know uh youtube uh and and, and hbo was you know uh, uh a necessary stepping stone but also very fun and like good exposure
2: yeah dude that's great <clears throat> and and developing characters like this is it based on someone that you've met before is this based on an experience that you've witnessed or is it, is it just something that you start riffing on and then you develop it?
1: It gets inspired. So I might see something like, you know, I'll see some kind of documentary or something and it always kind of triggers something in me. And I always assume that part of that trigger is basically it's it's, it's digging up a part of me that I've chosen to uh, pack down or forget or just I'm not as in touch with anymore. And once mm. it does that, I start evaluating and digging deeper into that aspect of myself and really you know it's a reflection of my family and my upbringing and the community that i was i was raised in and that's how uh characters like these at least for me materializes i'm able to like i i somewhere down the line after be, being in this character's shoes long enough i just am able to think like this character like nobody's business and um mm-hmm. i wanted i really wanted to create the character because i wanted to educate a demographic of people who uh, just had no way of, 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 of being educated in the areas that really matter as far as mm-hmm. learning in the United States. So I didn't make this... I, I, I swear on everything, I created this character for poor people. Really? Yeah. I'm a brother that lived in... I've lived in the hood and I've lived in trailer parks and I've lived in the Caribbean. And one thing I've noticed that's very common in the United States that's very different from the Caribbean is that in the Caribbean, no matter how poor you are, no matter how poor the neighborhood you live in is, you get a quality education. In Mm -hmm. the United States, class and income or class and revenue, you know, class and household income dictate the quality of your education. And so there's this demographic that grew up just like me and wasn't given insight on finance, wasn't given insight on the etiquette of, uh, you know, of, 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 of pursuing investors, wasn't given insight on how to put together a business plan or self personal development, you know, and I wanted mm-hmm. to figure out a way to educate them. But then the thing is, is that I want to do it in a way that way it wouldn't feel like they were being taught and bored to death. I wanted them to feel like they were just getting some laughs and being like, oh wait, that shit made some sense. Hold up, rewind that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that's actually really great. And, it, and it's also interesting too because your character is getting out of prison, trying to restart his life and that's that's almost impossible. To actually get yourself out of a prison system and then try to like get into a, a, a normalized life while following the system that you have to go through after you get out of prison. Whether you have to get a 9-to-5 job or you have to uh, follow a specific set of rules. And it just seems like the system is built to keep those folks within that system, which is very depressing when you actually think about it. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated that you're tackling all this stuff in the, in the new piece, man.
1: Man, you, you, you spoke that like a brother who's done some time. Talk to me now. <laughs>
2: Look, man, I, the, my only connection to it. So I'm, I'm a director myself and I've spent a few years. Uh, I'm from the East Coast originally, so from Boston. And I spent a few years doing a documentary um, with a director of, actually uh, another director from Trinidad, actually. His name is Rudy Hippolyte. And oh, wow. we did a series on um, gang life in Boston. So Boston's got like 125 different gangs. And uh, we actually followed around these folks that are trying to help gangs. And we actually went through the process of uh, seeing what it's like to try to get out of the system. And if you're living and you're growing up in neighborhoods where the only way out seems to be either becoming a basketball star or becoming a rap star, which is so ridiculous... Um, that that it's either that or dealing drugs or or trying to make it quick cash on the street. Mm-hmm. You just realize, like you said earlier, that they haven't been exposed to simple things like how to set up a bank account, how to balance your checkbook, how to, you know, uh do regular life stuff that we take for granted, being, you know, a middle-class kid. You yes. know, and so that experience was such an eye-opening experience for me being like I said, a middle-class white kid from a neighborhood that gets put into neighborhoods that we're told uh, our whole lives are dangerous places and there are dangerous people in these places and you shouldn't be going there. Uh, and then you get embedded in those neighborhoods, you realize that there's a sense of community, there's a sense of urgency, there's a sense that they they need to educate themselves and they needed to protect themselves. And it's it was a very heartwarming and welcoming uh, scenario. Um, and so I I... I just consider myself a passenger in that world when I did those films for a short period of time. But I'm so happy that I had that experience because we talk a lot on the show about empathy. Um, Uh. And it just uh, like it enabled me to understand and enabled me to actually see myself in that same fucking position. And, And honestly, you touched a little bit on it, which is that the world right now is a class system. And so it's good. Eventually it'll hit a point where it doesn't matter what fucking color your skin is, it's it's whether you make millions or whether you don't make millions.
1: <laughs> Dude, I, I I keep telling people it's coming and guess what? It's knocking on their door right now. Yeah, you know, no. Um I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off.
2: I didn't mean to cut you off. You're our guest, man. People hear me talk all the fucking time.
1: <laughs> you know what? No. Hey, look, but I, what you just said, I appreciate so much. And I'm like listening to you talking. and I'm like, I knew there was a reason I decided to do this damn show. And, you know, you, I mean, you, you hitting all the talking points. I ain't even got to say nothing because real like I have people now that everything's going on with protests and everything. I have people mm-hmm. saying to me, yeah, but. Why do y'all say the N-word? What about all the black people killing black people? And I'm just going to expound on what you just said and answer those questions, because this is for the first time in my life. People are actually asking me this question sincerely. And the Mm -hmm. only reason I'm bringing it up is because to a degree, it kind of it kind of ties into this whole discussion about this film. You know, it's about a, a guy who comes from a disenfranchised community, who ends mm-hmm. up in the system, and now he comes out of the system as a felon and he's even more disenfranchised and still trying to pursue these dreams, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to just explain a couple of things. People say, "Well, why you, the N-word?" And look, part of it's conditioning in the sense that when I was when I lived in Texas, right? Living in trailer parks in Texas and shit, and I heard somebody call me the N-word <laughs> or when I lived in New York and we would Cross from Queens into NASA to buy comic books and you mm-hmm. heard people scream, you know, look, you know, look at those beggars or whatever. We hey, we knew that was a sign to run. We knew yeah. that was like, yo, get the Hey, They got bats <laughs> with nails in them. Run. Yeah. And the real talk. And, the, you know, or I was either a cop yelling at me or my dad or, you know, my mm. my family. Um, it was it was horrible but it was oddly enough whenever i heard a black person say the word it was a term of endearment mm. so like i would hear growing up all my life i would hear people say it and it was meant in the most like endearing way
2: yeah and
1: so yeah. it's a conditioning over 51 years of like it having nuance in my head of There being these variables this degree in which you hear it and if I hear it from certain people it triggers fear and I hear it From other people and it 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 triggers endearment and warmth And I think that we are conscious enough as people to know that so sometimes we're even using the term when it's not Even sincere to us, but we know that it it will be interpreted as endearment. You get what I'm saying? Well, yeah,
2: I think what it is is that people are so fucking lazy you know, in general, that uh, the process of understanding intention takes Mm -hmm. a little bit, a little bit of effort. You know what I mean? Where you hear someone say something and you go, what is their intent? You know? Yeah. And then that that always drives me crazy where people are just like, well, I'm not allowed to say the word. So you're not allowed to say it." It's like, it's the intention of it and how it's being used in a sentence. And then what they're trying to convey, what that person is trying to convey emotionally, and what that person is trying to convey as far as information is concerned. So do yourself a favor and actually listen.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, look, and and I'm not sitting here justifying the usage of the word. I'm just trying to, prob- I'm just trying to speak on behalf of the people that I know and the experience that I've had, and I think, at least for me, that's the most because i've asked myself the same question and i think it's mm-hmm. the it's 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 the most uh like honest and fair depiction that i can come up with for my personal experience and then i want to talk about the other side of that which is like you know people are you like you were saying like you don't you know you, people don't realize all of these little third world pockets throughout the united states of america
0: mm-hmm. where
1: people are deprived basic necessities of life, such as clean water. They don't understand that people are deprived of consistently consistent sanitation and sewage. You know, yeah. there's all this stuff. And it, it, this starts from all the way back in the 1800s where when, you know, when, when slaves fled for freedom and they came to these places to live, they were naive. They weren't well-versed in, like, property, you know, purchasing of property. And, you know, they didn't yeah. know how to go about it. So what happened is a lot of these, you know, uh, uh, Realtors and whatnot would, ins- and, and, and also it, it, it was the, the um, government policy as well that mm-hmm. these people of color and immigrants could only live in certain areas, these high risk areas. And not only did they have to live in these high risk areas, but they were charged more. That's yeah. why, if you look back into the history, if a realtor did let a black person move into a community, it was usually a device. So what that meant was it was a way of getting people to move out of that community into newer, more expensive communities or newer mm-hmm. developed communities. or, um, And they would usually charge the black family so much more to live in that community that the property value for all the other houses would go up. Mm-hmm. So, um, so now you had these uh, people being forced to live in what was considered high-risk communities and high-risk because of what they were – Capable of financially, and they would charge them more. Now, this community that these communities they were forced to live in might be intended to service a thousand families or twelve hundred families, but because they were being charged so much, right? Mm -hmm. What would end up happening and on top of that, they were being heavily policed, because that's what the police were initially set up for, that they would have male figures being extracted from the community, one in four, one out of four. And so that would also compromise household income. And and so uh, through that, you know, so as a result of that, uh, it'd be difficult to maintain this, you know, you paying double the rent or double the mortgage or sometimes triple and quadruple rent and mortgage so you'd have other people move in with you. And suddenly the water and sanitation uh, and, and all of the utility services intended for a community of 1,200 is now serving a community of 2,400. Yeah. Right. And and you, you can create a slum really quick under those conditions. And so um, what ends up happening is, is that with, you know, the over-policing, the living conditions and everything else, uh, a, a kid growing up in that environment is just and also the absence of education. We're, we're yeah. still a segregated country when it comes to education. And you're right. It's, it's, it's class. It's, it's race and class. But the other part of it was the opportunity for employment is so much more difficult because these you know, uh, all of these major companies would build outside of the suburbs, which mm-hmm. were built specifically for Caucasians. It was like, we and, and realtors, there was redlining. It was insisted that you could not let uh, uh, black people live in those communities. So what ends up happening is the absence of opportunity, um, the, the, the condition of the community, the absence of education and all these other things. If you're a 10, 11, 12 year old, you're mm-hmm. much more likely to get back to what you were talking about, to join a gang. That's just yeah. the way it is. Yeah, And because of that, you see all of this violence because 80% of the crime in America is attributed to gangs and 46% of violent crime in America is attributed to gangs. This is business a lot of times. A lot of the violence we see in these communities, and by the way, it's not just in black communities, but a lot of the violence we see in these communities is because of uh business fights over territory it's all you know it's 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 initiation it's how you get into a gang it's all of these things and it's terrible and no one no one's endorsing it no one's defending it but uh in order for it to actually change realistically it's back to what you said we've got to figure out a way to like man we've got to reverse this disparity you know it's not the disparity is not really just a, a, a result of people being lazy you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> no. you know what I'm saying. No, but people, no. You know, and this is the first time in my life of 51 years alive where I feel like people who are people, you know, who are not of color, mm-hmm. asking me genuinely, like, "Yo, why? How come?" And so that's the the best answer I could give. And this is not some hoity-toity dude in Hollywood speaking on behalf of the black community. This is a brother who's in Fort Lauderdale right now. You know what I'm saying? This is the this mm-hmm. is the, this is a brother who grew up in Brooklyn, New York, Laurelton, Queens, Baytown, Texas, and Trinidad and Tobago. I've had the pleasure, the the, the blessings of living all over the world, but I came into Hollywood when I was 30 years old. I heard this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My friends are my friends. My friends still live in these neighborhoods. My friends still drive trucks. You know, some of them drive limos, you know, some of them, you know, uh, are entrepreneurs within the community. Some of them are pastors, you know, uh, I'm I'm not that far removed from the experience and I really do my best to, you know, to not only stay connected but to be of service to the community. So, anyway, that's my rant on that whole thing, but you know, when it's you a- when you mentioned that documentary, it triggered that and it also made me want to ask you what the name of the documentary was.
2: Uh, so, I got two docs. There's one called uh, Push Madison versus Madison which was about uh, Madison Park basketball team, which is in uh, Madison. It's like Dorchester, Boston. And essentially, it was a high school basketball team that was going state champions. It was a huge team. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were comprised of rival gang members. And so we had to sort of, we followed them around and saw how like these rival gang members uh, kind of tore this team apart. So it was like Hoosiers gone wrong. And that was yes. the first one. And then we did a second one called This Ain't Normal, which followed around... A team of street workers. There was a. There used to be a team of street workers. Of course, they got rid of it, but uh, there were uh, ex-convicts that decided that uh, to give back to the community, they would uh, become role models um, and uh, father figures for young gang members, and they would uh, do simple shit like uh, make sure that they caught up with the kids that were on the street and they would take kids to go get their eyes tested for glasses, you know, take them to go get their driver's license, like teach them all these different things. And it used to be financed by the city. And of course it's no longer financed by the city because it doesn't make the city money. So um, we ended up doing two pieces on those.
1: I missed the name of that second one.
2: It's called This This Ain't Normal. And it just came out. I think it's streaming now. It's on,
1: who put it out?
2: I forget who put it out but it just came out. It's actually really great. That one's uh that was a wild. that was like 2 years of, you know, shooting on and off but embedded with these kids and it was fascinating to see uh their mindsets and it, without getting too deep into it, but the the thing with Boston is is that if you were born on a street, you were automatically in a gang. Right. And they were, these gangs had been established from the 80s um and uh, they were established by their uncles and their fathers and people that were still in prison and people that still had beefs and so those beefs would still be you know carried out by these young kids and uh actually hanging out with these kids and, and being in that situation and trying to explain to them like look there are other opportunities for you especially in dorchester there are there there are banks uh like community banks owned by black people that are giving out loans to people that have solid business plans like if you guys wanted to start a barbershop if you guys wanted to start a car stereo installation place you could do that sort of thing and 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 you could have that access to make your own business uh, and a lot of these kids just didn't know that because th- like you said they their fathers were either yanked out of their family or their mom was you know working three jobs to try to pay that ridiculous um you know rent for every month so uh it was it was a saddening thing to see but when and i don't want to get too deep in this cuz this exists everywhere right now but when you are somebody who from the outside is asking you like how is this real and what does this mean and it always kind of drives me crazy where it's like all you really need to do is be a good person and give back and if you see somebody and you want to be like a big brother if you want to go and be a role model if you want to help teach people and help teach kids you know the stuff that you were taught that you'd take for granted. Simple shit. Like, you know, how do I fucking balance a checkbook? How do right. I open a bank account? Right. Yeah. You know, like that kind of stuff is so goddamn powerful. And it empowers the people that don't have those skills that are consistently being preyed up upon by corporations that expect them not to have those fucking skills. Because then how else are they going to be in credit card debt? How else right. are you going to have... Some bullshit fucking debt that's running over your head for a fucking phone bill that is a goddamn ripoff, you know? So hundred percent. And dude, we're getting ranty here.
1: No, no, no. Yo, you know, look, man. I, I look, um, you know, I get it and I just am excited that we're at a place where as an independent filmmaker, mm-hmm. um, I get to utilize, you know, these theories like cultivation theory as a means of like you know, putting in some, some healthy programming, some yeah. programming, the type of programming that actually, that actually, you know, uh, increases, em- you know, the, the chances that people having empathy that actually, you know, I you know, when you look, when you look at my film and even though you're laughing, you're behind off the whole time and this character is saying the raw shit you've ever heard, <laughs> um, you know, you, uh, you are getting insight to what it means to be, you know, on parole. You see, the he the, the, the reason his family is unable to call him is because they can't afford to. That thirteen dollars deposit is a hard hit. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, you yeah. you see that. You know, he's got to pay for CCs. You know, criminal courts. He's got to pay for you know the uh you know his his his, his uh, urinalysis. He's got to pay for all these all these things. You know, and it's like <laughs> you know, like you said, man, this is really difficult. So I'm just excited about that. Um, and also, I couldn't have planned it better, but. I think that uh, the sorry, I I got a little distracted. I think that the um, you know the situation with COVID is kind of helping make it possible for more people to like self-distribute, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I know we're going to get into that. And anyway, you know, we we have an opportunity to say things as filmmakers, whatever it is you want to say, even if your views are opposing, you just have an opportunity to. To, to, to say them in, in, in ways that, you know, and coming from, you know, from filmmakers that wouldn't, that would have been drowned out by the noise prior.
2: Yeah. No, and it's good because uh, your stuff is funny to begin with and, and, and it's entertaining. So I think that's the most important aspect is like, let's make, you're making a piece that I want to watch. You're making a piece that is going to be fun. And then subconsciously and subtly in the, in the sub, in the subtext, it's teaching you a lesson, which I yeah. think is really cool, man. It's really yeah. cool
1: that's the new game bro i think it's the new game man
2: (laughs) (laughs) well let's get into some other stuff um so you briefly touched upon it and this was something i was going to ask you i'm completely fascinated by the fact that you didn't really get full into acting until you were in your 30s that must have been such a benefit i would say because you know it seems like more often than not we put younger folks on such a huge pedestal and you uh if you look at uh child actors and kids that get started really early on uh they tend to burn out pretty quick uh it must have been really great to be able to bring a lot of life experiences into it when you got into acting in your 30s
1: you know yeah i mean that was really the blessing that was part of the blessing because even coming in at 30 i had so many insecurities and i was still so impressionable that i could have you know uh ended up in uh in, in some pretty, you know, gnarly situations, but I I feel as though being that late, you know, into my life and even mm-hmm. really hadn't considered acting prior to that, I feel as though it gave me this benefit of having a clearer sense of who I was, a clearer sense of who my community is, because most of the times you come into Hollywood young, you assume that Hollywood's your community. I see it over and over. Yeah. I've had people tell me that Hollywood's the only family they've ever known, and I'm like, ooh, that's some sad shit right there, because you know, <laughs> I'm telling you right now, you're... Your family, your Hollywood family, will will they will snort some coke, drink some alcohol, and they will like literally sleep with your whole family. But okay, um, <laughs> if you if you if you say so, you know. Um, and so I was lucky in that way. But the other part of it was exactly that I had some real life experience to bring to it. And usually, even with the training that I've now had and everything, I'm always drawing from real life, and yeah. it just seems to add a level of authenticity that you just can't fake. It's like the difference between reading someone's lines and reading through your life. Mm. And so I'm always working, whatever character they ask me to play, I'm always like, where is this in my life? Where Mm. is this in my life? And there was a period in my life where I actually slept every day and lived in a house that sold weed, had a hole in the side of the wall and the whole shit so that we could see. They had a hole in the wall, not a window, a hole in the wall so that we could see (laughs) if the cops had crossed the tracks. And if it crossed the tracks, everything got dumped. Yeah. You know, I wasn't a drug dealer or anything. I just happened to be living in that spot. And don't get me wrong, the dude who sold the weed, like after he had a full day, he would go home and he would leave us like 50 joints that we could sell if we wanted to. You know how much fun it was to see your high school bullies come to that house and try to buy weed after that? Like, what you want, fam? (laughs) Hey, hey, junior. Hey, man, I just think I could get like a fatty from you, man. Nah, we don't know you now. We don't Remember when you wouldn't let me sit down on the bus? Oh, Junior, you know I was just playing. Yeah, I'm playing too, get the fuck off the porch.
2: That's hysterical.
1: I'm I'm being a fool, I'm being a fool, I'm just kidding. No,
2: it's great, man. (laughs) Okay, so right about now is that time that uh, we need to take a break and give a little love to the men and women that are responsible for the show and i'm not just talking about you guys listening because you guys have been doing such a great job of reposting about the show and reposting episodes that you like and continue to do so if you love this episode more people need to hear it so write to us and say hey can you send me that video graphic that you've been using on instagram i'd love to repost that or just rip them. Grab like a reposting fucking app on your phone and just rip all our promo graphics. You guys can post them, you can brag about them, you should. You're one of the first to love this show and to listen to this show, we consider you part of the family. These early listeners of this podcast, right before this show blows the fuck up, you guys are at the forefront of it and I will reward you for it, I promise. Got some stuff coming, so we'll put it together. But in the meantime, Let's give the shout outs to the people that make this show possible. I'm talking about the men and women over at Puget Systems. If you're an independent filmmaker or photographer, if you're a video gamer, and you're sitting in front of your computer and you're tired of that fucking pinwheel of death, right? Or that long load time. And you're like, man, if I had a solid state drive on my operating system hard drive, this shit wouldn't take forever to load up. How long do I have to sit and stare at the loading screen for Premiere as it loads all those fucking plugins, right? You know what I'm talking about. So do yourself a favor, it's time to buy a new computer. And I highly suggest you get a PC. PCs are more affordable, PCs are reliable. Contrary to popular fucking belief, PCs are incredibly reliable um, and they're upgradable. I liked being able to custom build something that works for my needs, that's important. And I know a lot of you out there are like me, where you're like, look, I don't have time to build a PC. I don't have time to test hardware. Where do I find the right hardware? I went through the same shit, man. But don't worry, I did the legwork for you. I went and I found Puget Systems. It's a company that I sought out. And then they became sponsors of the show, okay? So I sought these guys out. We built computers together. They built me a bunch of edit systems that I had been using for five years. And I love these edit systems. Can you imagine five years and I'm still cutting on them? Holy shit, I'm not throwing it out. It's not ending up in the ocean somewhere in China, right? So uh, go check them out. Go to PugetSystems.com. There you can pick out a baseline PC based upon the software you use, okay? So like if you're building a Premiere system or if you're building an After Effects system, you know, they don't need the same things, man. And you could build a system that kind of works for everything, but if you want a specialized After Effects system, Puget Systems knows the hardware you need to do it. And these guys don't manufacture hardware. These guys build computers. So they have no allegiances. They're out there looking for the cheapest, most affordable, most reliable software to go in your system. Check them out. You can select a baseline package, and then these guys like to communicate with you. So you can reach out to them and say, this is how much money I got. This is what I'm looking to build. This is what I do. And they will help you spend that money. And if you're in Europe, if you're somewhere outside the US where Puget can't ship to, They've offered a new consultation program for about $500 to start. They will walk you through the steps that you need to build a machine that is a Puget Systems machine. Pretty cool stuff, right? Go check them out. Go to pugetsystems.com. Also, sponsoring this episode are our good friends over at Quasar Science. One of the biggest advancements in movie technology has been with lighting. I know you've noticed it, I know you've seen it on Netflix how beautiful all these shows look, how insane the color spectrums are. It's because of LED technology. And I have a lot of folks asking, a lot of young directors, a lot of young photographers asking, what do you have in your kit? I have tubes from Quasar Science, right? They're lightweight, they don't run hot, they don't require a lot of power. Uh, you can dial in if you get their uh, bicolor color uh, LEDs. They're consistent lights for tungsten and for daylight. Um, Or you can get their rainbow LEDs, which dial in any color of the rainbow. We have full episodes on this shit um, about LED technology. Go check them out. Go to quasarscience.com and consider getting some of those for your kit. Because uh, I think they're great. Use them all the time. Also sponsoring the show. This is our third episode read for these guys. I love these dudes. I found these guys because I am a fan of t-shirts, right? I'm a big fan of uh, old horror movie t-shirts, and I like to find rare, strange <laughs> reference t-shirts, where if you wear it, people are like, what the fuck is that from you? like, are uh, stupid, that's from the gate. <laughs> are you the same way? Do you like to wear inside jokes? If you do, I would highly suggest you go to fright-rags.com. Go to frightrags.com. Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products, your favorite creature feature, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Collections include John Carpenter's Halloween, Universal Monsters, Night of the Living Dead, Creepshow, Twin Peaks, Evil Dead, Ghostbusters, and many, many more. All officially licensed. That means they're legitimately doing this. Officially officially licensed and only available at fright-regs.com. Now, as a listener of the show, If you go there and you use the promo code ILWP10, promo code ILWP10, you'll get 10% off, okay? That's what we do, that's what they do, and use the promo code because it's traceable. These guys know that you guys are going, you guys are buying stuff. Great way to support the show. They continue to support the show with sponsorship cash. It's important, and uh, everybody's happy. You get a cool T-shirt, we get good respects, we get the high five, you guys can send me. Here's the thing, send me the pictures of the T-shirts that you guys buy. I'd love to see it. I posted my shirt, I have one from Poltergeist, which I really dig. I also have like this really weird one from UHF with the weird Aaron Yankovic, so great movie there too. Um, But if you buy some stuff from Fright Rags, send me a picture of it. I'd love to see what shirt you got. We'll, We'll laugh together, we'll have an inside joke. So go check them out, fright-rags.com. Okay, and as always, do yourself a favor. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. At inlovewiththeprocess.com, there's opportunities for you guys to help out the show. If you want to give donations, there's a donation button for the show. Um, Or if you want to click through on any of our sponsor links, we have deals with Capital One. There are a hundred different ways for you to actually support this show without reaching in your own pocket. One of them is also signing up for a free trial at Audible. If you haven't done so already, you can sign up for a free Audible trial. I think it's audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. We'll put the link below. But there you sign up, you get 30 days for free, you get a free audiobook, you get access to all their content, and we get loot. So after the 30 days, if you decide that you can't afford it, if suddenly the lack of funding from the government as far as unemployment goes has put you in a rough spot, don't worry about it. Cancel the trial. We still get paid either way. We know that you're going to get want to stick around because you're going to fall in love with this shit. Um, but, you know, let's be real, right? So it's a great way to help us out without costing you a fucking dime. And you'll find that at inlovewiththeprocess.com backslash sponsors. Bunch of options there for you. Also, if you're new to the show, if you come along because you've seen today's episode and you're like, this show sounds fascinating. This guy says fuck a lot. I think I'm going to stick around. Cool. Awesome. Happy you did. But you're looking at it going, shit, what number of episode is this? This is like 92 or 93, wherever the fuck we are. Uh, where do I start? Right? Well, you can go back and start from the beginning. If you're a true comic book kid, you'll go back and buy the first issue and read your whole way through, but you don't have to. You can go to loveoftheprocess.com. There I've curated a bunch of different options for you. One, if you only want to listen to episodes with directors, there's a director section that lists all the episodes with directors. Two, if you want to flavor of the show, there's a section that is the top 20 episodes of our podcast. There, I've compiled my favorite episodes and episodes that our fans have really loved and created a top 20 list. It's a great way to get into the show. And in that list is the first episode, so don't worry, you'll get caught up. Um, go to inloveoftheprocess.com. Great place, really good references. And for each episode, we actually have a page built that contains clips contains supporting material contains all of that stuff so even if you're listening to this on apple Podcasts or spotify you still might want to head on over to the episode page for this week and be able to see these clips that we talk about in love with the process.com all right guys let's get back into the episode Um, well so the thing i've the thing i like about you as an actor and the thing that i've always liked about your performances is is that you are fearless and you really commit to them and you can see that in the performance and it's entertaining to watch Mm -hmm. it's really um fascinating to watch you completely commit um and uh have the balls to do so and i think uh, dealing with actors myself and and working with folks, it's it's about getting shedding that insecurity. It's about becoming as comfortable as possible. Um, and it seems like every time that you you take in a role, uh, you have this ability to turn on that comfort that comfortability. You know what I mean?
1: No, I know what you mean. And you know, I gotta be real. There's been times I've watched, like when I'm in when I watched Forty Year Virgin, I was like, Hey, hey, Judd, can you cut me out of this shit? <laughs> <laughs> like. My mom's, an, my mom's an ordained minister, fam. I kind of need you to just, can you cut out 50% of my shit? He's like, we can't. He's like, we can't, Romney. You're, you're funny. And I was like, hey, Judd, no, I'm, I'm serious. Like there might, be, there might be some legal actions taken if you don't fucking cut me out of this movie. And he was like, shut up. People love you. And then he made me come to a screening. So I sat in the back and got to watch people watch the screening. And that was the first time I truthfully
2: relaxed. Oh, dude! Because that's that performance is phenomenal. Oh, the performance you. is really great, man. Um, and I, I forgot that it was Judd. How how was working with Judd? His sets—you must be laughing on his sets all the fucking time. How was how was that?
1: Uh, I think working with Judd was amazing. He's like, um, you know, what I loved about Judd and what I learned from him, what I took from Judd, uh, is that I learned the importance of crafting out the screenplay. But I also hmm. learned a work ethic that I would not have learned anywhere else where I would see him tell I would see him tell S- Seth Rogen, yo I need 20 jokes. And hmm. Seth would go literally go get a, a quiet spot and write 20 30 jokes. <laughs> and then they'd come back and we'd use two, maybe one. <laughs> and I was like, "What? Damn, that's yo, that's a that's a low ROI, but it made me think to myself like and like 10 of his jokes would be hilarious and it just made me mm-hmm. think like oh wow so this is what it takes and you know seeing that from someone that you really respect and 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 look up to and whose work you really appreciate it 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 sets a tone for you when you're working on your own stuff and yeah. um, and so for me that um that that, that was a good experience
2: so in that scene in particular, is that, <clears throat> it was that all pretty much scripted or was that uh, loosely scripted and then there's improv involved with it?
1: Uh, which scene are we referring to here?
2: Uh, the one that you did with Kevin Hart, which oh, was yes. uh, phenomenal. So
1: you know, you know, uh, J- Judd wouldn't dare. He was like, look, um, I'm going to just need y'all to improv. And then we would improv and he'd be like, oh. uh, okay, so let's do this again. And can, can, I like this part and I like the part where you say the thing? What thing? You know what you said. I'm not saying it. You said it. Say it again. The thing, you know. And I, me and Kevin be over there giggling. Like, say it, Judge. What is it? Say it? Just say it one time so I can get exactly. I, I want to give you what you want. I'm not romany. I'm not saying it. <laughs> Uh, oh my god we give such a hard time but yeah so um we did improvise a lot but there was a solid scene written you know about you know jay makes the rules and all this other stuff was written mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. all that other stuff was uh me meeting kevin hart and kind of being blown away by who that dude was
2: yeah he's he's quite a force um and uh the thing that's fascinating with me with uh because most of the stuff i do so I, I do a lot of horror movies i do a lot of like thrillers and that's that's kind of my my world and comedy always fascinates me because it seems like in order for something to be funny, it's almost like you're you're creating an environment in which lightning can be captured. You know, you're trying to find like that. You don't know if it's funny until you fucking hear it kind of thing. Right. And, yes. Um, and I know that there's a bunch of different techniques out there. There's a bunch of different ways of doing that. And some people... Uh, you know, you hire Will Ferrell and you just have him fucking improv all the way through it. And they, then there are the folks that are just like literally scripting these things. And, and somehow it's really, really funny. You went through the process on this new film of actually writing it and directing it yourself. And um, what, after going through the process of directing this, uh, what is your method for finding funny at this point?
1: Well, I want to go back to Judd and to jump to that because what I learned from Judd was when I read 40 year old Virgin, I read a solid script. Mm
0: -hmm. It was
1: one of the most developed, well-developed scripts I've read of the jobs I've been involved in. It was one of the most developed. Like Mm. that was weeds was a really good developed one. Usually when you come onto a job, the script is about 60% there and it's getting developed in the process of the casting and everything else. Um, A lot of what I did in the audition was after I had read this well-developed script, but they had me auditioning for like three hours a day in there, and at least three three sessions of that, and so a, a lot of which ended up in the script, but the thing is, is that, you know, by constantly improvising and doing all these sessions, he was finding moments and being like, ooh, ooh, and including it in the script, and, and hmm. we did rehearsals, and it showed up before we ever got um, to set, so that stuff was kind of like um it was very uh collaborative, and so mm-hmm. it's usually Paul Rudd coming up with a really funny joke for someone to say or someone coming up with something funny for Paul to say, some hit some flat, some fall flat and um you just uh, when you when you see that, you give everyone it, it's something a lot of times when you're making particularly a studio film in fact mm-hmm. on that on that set. The clock was ticking and you knew it because by the third day or fourth day of filming, the studio came and shut it down.
2: Really? I didn't yeah. know
1: that. Yeah. Wow. They, they, because Jed had shot so much footage, they thought that the majority of the film was already, oh, a good portion of the film was shot and they hadn't approved looks and all this other stuff. And uh, when he was like, no, mm-hmm. no, nah, nah, we just improv. Like, we literally shot a million feet of film. So he's yeah. like, no, 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 we just improv. We just improv. And they're like, oh, oh, okay. So we ended up having friday off and then we had our weekend and then we came back monday like nothing ever happened and so i learned from that that it's very important to have a launching pad of a quality script and then i also realized that that quality script is the lifeline in the event that you're not able to improv and then i also learned that improv takes a lot of time so if you're going to opt to improv on a set just know that what you're going to have what's going to happen is you're going to hear a bunch of stuff and there may be a few moments in there where it's actually rocking and Mm -hmm. then you want to go okay Let's work on these moments. These moments are magical, and let's. So you're distilling it, and so you get rid of all that other stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, you know, because I was shooting an independent film, and because we only had a take or two before someone told us to get the hell off off of that location,
0: because <laughs> right. we
1: had no permits, um, right. we were really just um, kind of doing what was on the script. And once in a while, we would have an opportunity to improv, like Regina improv some stuff um, uh, in the car about. You know the MVP. I'm not even going to tell people what it means. Um, that shit is <laughs> hilarious to me. I'm fucking. I'm going to tell you. It means most vintage pussy. Um, <laughs> you know that's, oh, the that's perfect. Mrs. Hall just <laughs> improvising. But yeah, we didn't have a, we didn't have as much time as we would have liked to improvise. And you know who else improvised something? The guy who was the the linguistic specialist. I'm not going to tell y'all what that is. But the linguistic specialist <laughs> improvised as
2: well. Really cool. I'm excited to see the whole piece, man. I can't wait to see it. Thank um, you, thank you. So <clears throat> the other thing that's fascinating to me, you know, like I said, being a director, I, I understand how how chaotic uh, an independent film set can be, and I understand that uh, you're basically working against the elements. And I've always said that uh, there's only one point in which I feel like I'm directing. It's when I call action, and then as soon as I call cut, everybody and their grandmother has a reason why I should stop filming. And I'm consistently battling that. Um, I, I cannot imagine if I was directing myself, if I was also on screen. How difficult is it for you to be the lead and the director at the same time?
1: It, you know, it, it's weird because it's it's um, for my first. It's my directorial debut, and it's kind of all I know. But back to what you were saying, how you were saying like. You know, I love how you commit to characters. One Mm -hmm. of my rules for for, for working is to not allow myself to think in a scene. I'm not allowed to think. Mm -hmm. I am uh, really doing my best to just go from the gut. And so, in this particular project, and I believe it's project to project, in this particular project, it was great because I was working with actors who I had cast through a commercial agent, you know, a commercial casting agent. So mm-hmm. these people hadn't been in film before, or hadn't had a chance to do any TV work or anything. So being in the scene with them was a great way to help kind of coach them into the performance that I wanted.
2: Oh, interesting! Oh, that's yeah. fascinating! Yeah, 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 yeah. Because if Cause I had, then you can you can guide them a bit with how you're doing your performance.
1: At that exactly, point. exactly. And so, um, and also the, uh, those who had some training, whether they had worked with Meisner or they worked with Leslie Kahn and they knew I, I understood the, their process. Cause I had trained, I had done all that training. I understood their process enough to be able to, to communicate with them in that way too, you know, saying, okay, here's a parenthetical, you know what I mean? Can you, tr- let's try this as a build. And they would, they knew that was, that was their, they used technology where some people used Meisner and I could get into it with them on set to where we'd be really worked up before, before
2: I yell, I would yell action. Wow, it's so cool, man. I never thought of that. That's interesting. And then as far as, uh, you know, the visuals and the technical stuff, what did you just rely heavily on your cinematographer, like for whether or not it looked good or how were you process? Or were you just watching playback after every take? Like, how did you? No,
1: no. We, we, we really planned it out, you know, and this is going to sound crazy. I had a, I had a DP and I just didn't think that that guy got the spirit of independent film. Mm -hmm. And he was looking at me like, you're a big name. I want, I want my paycheck.
0: Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm.
1: like, dude, I wouldn't have, if I had the money for you, I wouldn't have done a crowdfunding campaign because I'm promising you that crowdfunding pan- campaign is harder than making this film.
0: Yeah,
1: but he just I didn't feel secure with him. and So four days prior, uh, a friend of mine asked me to look at their director's reel uh, and let me know what I thought. And on the director's reel, there was this two second clip of a, of a woman in her 70s named Ruby with red hair walking down the street smoking a cigarette and i was like who shot that and she was like i'll introduce you to him and i hired him four days before the shoot wow. he asked yeah he asked me like 15 questions and then every day we sat together and just put together a shot list of what we wanted and it's you know we even would draw out on a whiteboard or even you know even sometimes over zoom we would do it as well share the screens And we Mm -hmm. had a good idea of what we wanted. I had done a lot of, like, story... I storyboarded the movie, um, uh, you know, and I also um, had my daughter help me with the sketches on the storyboarding. I had Mm -hmm. also shot... I shoot dolls. I use dolls to kind of create the angles and the look that I want, and I had that on set as well. So Mm -hmm. all of that preparation kind of gave us an idea of what we were doing before the the day.
2: It's so important to do that. I think a lot of people don't realize... That whatever your process is, whether it is storyboarding or whether it's doing animatics or if it's shooting dolls, which is a a smart process as as well, you literally get to sort of work through a lot of the the early details. And and if anything, at least with me as a director, I start to really formulate my confidence in the sequencing and in the scene itself by doing that stuff early on. And, And then when you're there on set and you're dealing with a crew and you're dealing like you trying to deal with the fucking performance at the same time. Um, that must have been very, very helpful. You
1: know? I, per- I personally believe it's one of the reasons that a lot of the porn we see is so shitty. You know, I don't think. <laughs> no, I'm, just fine. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is this is not the place. Um, I'm and then let me let me go back to your point, bro. And your point is exactly right. And I think that what happens with a lot of us is that we. Are operating from a place of inspiration, and we want to go. We've got the fire in us. We've got the creativity. We've got the idea, and we want to act on that inspiration. And because of that, we compromise preparation. Yeah. But um, that there's, that great book. Um, it's called. Um, I think it's called the War of Art.
2: Mm, uh, I've never read it.
1: Okay, the War of Art is by a gentleman um, named. Let me think of it. I, I guarantee your listeners already know yep uh his name (laughs) we do (laughs) okay cool yeah Stephen Pressfield or something like that yep right okay so that 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 book is interesting because there's a quote in it that really helped get me on board for this film and it was that inspiration is for amateurs and that's Mm. how I wrote my script I wasn't inspired to write every day I just made myself write every day I didn't wait Mm. on inspiration to act and so I just had to go through all the steps that I had learned through watching other directors, through being on set for 20 years, and I honored it all. I honored the storyboarding. Some of the, my favorite directors that I've worked with were storyboarding. Um, I, you know, did like, I don't know, maybe 40-something drafts of this script. I say 46, but I don't know for sure. Um, 40-something drafts of the script uh, mm-hmm. before I really felt like we had it, the story cracked and we had it tight. Um, I, You know... Like I said, we did our shot lists and I just trusted that going through all this stuff that seemed so laborious and technical, um, I just felt as though I would just have to rely on the inspiration to be there on the day after going through all that, you know, letting the line producer do her thing and just. Trusting that come time to shoot, all of these things would contribute. And I literally just trusted that it did. Rather than saying, I got the inspiration, let's go right now. The truth is, is that when you do that, you've got the inspiration. But now you've got a team of people who are fucking lost. And that's going to suck the inspiration out of you so quick. Um, You know, and so the more... I have learned that... In life, not just in filmmaking, but in life, the universe rewards specificity. People are better able to identify their lane in your dream, in your mission, the more specific uh, your mission and dream is. And the better you can articulate it. And, you know, I say articulate it, but that means if they can read something or look at a graph or, you know, just have a clearer understanding of what path they should be taking are, are to aid in this journey, the the better the overall process. And even though we had an independent film that you know we shot in eighteen days, that was my goal was to make sure that every person was clear of the mission. I had this big—it's embarrassing now to think about it—but I had these <laughs> big old loose leaf notebooks mm-hmm. with all my storyboarding that I did at home in Puerto Rico. I had them both laying on two tables and. Anybody on set could walk up to him at any time, flip through him to where we were and see what was going on. Okay, I see. Okay, cool. Whether you were uh, a grip, whether you were a uh, uh, craft service, whether you were PA, uh, uh, you, uh, lighting department, it didn't matter. Whoever the hell you were, even, even if, it you know, our, you know, A.D., who really knew everything that was going on. Even mm-hmm. she would just sometimes say, don't talk to me, go look at the book. You
2: know? <laughs> well, dude, there's nothing embarrassing. I did that too. On my last film, I I went through the process of printing out every one of my boards and I just built a wall on the, on the soundstage. Yeah. And for the same fucking reason. I want everybody to know exactly what we're doing today. And if you... And you would watch like craft service people, you'd watch people just sort of walk through it and see the movie and and be a part of that movie. And oftentimes, if I had a free time or a free moment, I'd go over and go, What do you think? You know, yeah. like does this does this flow right? And how does this cause at the end of the day, at least with me, I'm I'm making films for an audience. I'm making films for people to experience kind of what I experienced or what I think they should experience. And so it's important to, to get that early connection. And so, and like you were saying uh, earlier, it's also important that our job as directors is, n- is, is not that sexy. <laughs> no, <laughs> You're no. essentially trying to get some loose ideas in your head uh, put together in such a way that your mouth can, can somehow put them out of your head. And then they go into somebody else's head and that person at least understands it 60%.
1: <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's very difficult to communicate. We think we're being clear and we're not even close. And that's why
0: mm-hmm.
1: sometimes you don't try to in, in reinvent the wheel, you know, and, and, and I've been in enough sets to see different processes and see the ones that work and see the ones that didn't. I've seen directors get yelled at and, mm. I've, and I've seen directors be adored, just like, we got to have you back, you know, and I kind of want to be like the ones that people want to have back. And Um,
2: and what do you think the traits, what are the the traits of the director that get asked that?
1: The directors that get get asked that do their homework. And what I mean by do their homework is um, they really learn the the tone of the project. They understand the tone that the writers and that the, you know, the creators of the the project. And also, if it's, let's say if it's a TV show, same thing. They they do their homework. They go, they watch those episodes. Uh, That's the first thing. So that they're speaking the same language. Uh, uh, and and but also not just speaking the same language, but also being like, uh, you know, th- they want to make it, they want to make their episode special, or they want to give this an edge that it didn't have, and they're able to communicate really well. That's the other thing. The directors who are able to communicate really well, some directors just don't know how to work with actors, and mm. I, I think that's, uh, you know, that they're, they're more technical and all about the angles and the shots, and so it's, they're so obsessed with that that they kind of leave their actors hanging. But in a way, it's a compliment because they just trust the actors to be able to do their thing. Yeah. Um, you know. Um then you have directors, uh another thing that, that makes a, a great director other sometimes is the director. They appreciate a director who shows up with storyboards because uh commuting communicating to a DP with crunch time uh and trying to put together a shot list on the go can yeah. be extremely difficult. But that yeah. you know you show up with those prepared storyboards, that really helps. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing is is like I've been on um uh I've been on straight-up, full-blown studio sets, high, con- you know, fairly high-concept movies where, mm. dude, the locations change at the last minute. And they were like, oh, you got, no, you can't shoot here. Yeah, I know what we said. I know what we said, you can't shoot here. <laughs> and you have, to, you have to change. And so that changes your shot list. That changes, yeah. you know, your angles and all that stuff. And so with that being said... I was like, well, who the hell are we running around with no permits, you know, shooting this joint? And so, um, you know, just like I said, you want to have that script that's, you know, that that's your lifeline in the event that you're unable to come up with anything good in your improv. You want to have, you know, all the preparation and all the visuals you can in the event that, you know, um, your location changes or in the event that, you know, uh, you have to change the order of, of the call sheet.
2: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. no it's dude it's smart and like i i'm prepping a movie right now and it's the 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 difficult thing is um you have to remind yourself because it's it's kind of (laughs) lonely the (laughs) whole prep of it is very even writing even writing is lonely
1: like how often do you masturbate when you're writing like a feature (laughs) (laughs) hello
2: Consistent, <laughs> <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead, go
1: ahead.
2: no it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, like, but it, it it is. It's a. It's you forget that it's a kind of a lonely thing, and you're trying to design these things, and and it, you hit that point where you're like, oh, is this inspired, and is this not inspired, and like, what does this mean? And for for me whenever I try to craft scenes or block out sequences, I believe in theme and I believe in the power of visuals and I believe in telling a story other than what is being said on screen. And it's a really difficult thing to do early on because you're, you're like, okay, so what does it mean for the blocking? And what does it mean if this actor is taller than this actor? And then why are they, who's transitioning the sense of power and how does that flow? And um, it's, it's a, it's a fun thing to do, but it's also very difficult lonely and stressful thing to do but that homework is it's so necessary because then i can at least go through those insecurities by myself and then figure these things out on my own so that way when i show up to set i go look i've worked this thing out man this is this works like this and this works like that and okay we have to change the location today that's fine the shots will change but i know exactly the position of power and i know how we're going to volley our way through the sequence so let's shoot it here here and here here it, it just becomes a lot easier and then when you're commanding, when you're directing, I always compare it to like being strapped to the front of a train and you're just trying to get people <laughs> out of your fucking way. And that's essentially what it feels like most of the time. And if you are prepped about it, and you're kind of guiding this train where it needs to go mm-hmm. as it runs off the fucking rails, then people are going to respect you for that, I
1: think. No, I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. If you're wondering why the quality of my voice has changed America, it's because I'm taking a bathroom break in the midst of all this shit. I love you. <laughs> I love all I think of it. This you. is our first bathroom break on the show. <laughs> hey, dude. Yo, hey, document this shit. It's this a milestone in, in in the podcast game. Um, <laughs> um, but I wanna tell you, bro, that you know, I think that when it really boils down to it, I think that for all of us, whether it's a relationship, whether we're directing a film, whether we're trying to become actors, whether we produce, line produce, whatever, I think that the process of for most of us, is we're trying to create a sense of security. Mm. And, you know, some of us need more or less than others, but all of it is this process of trying to give ourselves uh, uh, the belief that we're going to show up as bulletproof as we can. So it Mm -hmm. may just actually be a false sense of security because I've shown, I've seen directors show up on the fly and kill it, like be so good. Um, You know, but maybe they've been doing it 20 years. You know, um, and so my, my, my point being that um, I think there's a there's also a personality thing in this, too, where, you know, a lot of us come from different environments. And sometimes those it was one of the biggest lessons for me, including myself, where, you know, I've felt so powerless at times in my life and uh, so taken advantage of that I'm working and doing my best to avoid feeling as powerless ever again or to feel mm-hmm. as failed or as, uh, be as big a disappointment. And so what happens is we tend to become control freaks. We tend to become like you know addicted to being in control. And the yeah. problem with that mentality is that it's extremely limiting. And the reason is because, well, one thing I've learned, one thing I can confirm is that this can't be done without a team. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so we sometimes go into this with a very individualistic mentality or mindset, and it Mm -hmm. really limits the potential of the project because we're either hiring people that we can control, right, who don't necessarily uh, do the best for the project, or Mm -hmm. we're not hiring anyone at all. And we have this huge undertaking that we're, you know... obviously doing our best on but would not sure. be as effective in doing uh, had we been able to hire a team.
2: Sure. No. I mean, it, it is a team sport and it is uh, it is the one of the few art – I say this all the time. It's one of the few art forms where, as an artist, my brushes, each one of them have their own specific personality yeah. and they each come from a different place. And you need these. You need that. And, and I think the younger filmmaker in me, when I first started doing this stuff, it was – I think a lot of it was based in insecurity and there's a a sense of ego where it's like, I have to run the ship and I have to be the one that's doing all this stuff. And it wasn't until many years later that as you look back on your life and all the projects that you've done and you're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. The actual process is my life and the actual steps of this and spending time and doing location scouts and hanging out with people and having conversations with you. And this is what my day to day is. So really, I have to really come to enjoy this and- Um, and they, within that, there's this sense of community and there's a sense of a family that happens whenever you start a project. And I, I fucking love it. Like right. I, I revel in that stuff because, uh, who, who the hell else gets to do that as, as a, as their job, go join a new family and essentially have all these personalities and have all these different, uh, heritages and life experiences be integral into the, the piece itself. It's, yeah. it's fucking really. It's a lot of fun. and It's very, very exciting. And if you're listening at home and you you're envious, you should be.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's 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 very rewarding and um and very satisfying, uh, you know, when you when it's all worked out and it all comes together I and mean, you can all sit together and watch mm-hmm. it or all sit in quarantine and watch it. But whatever. Um, the point is, is that uh, <laughs> the. The, the the process is really what you have to fall in love with in order to do it because it's, it's very difficult. I knew a woman who was giving birth at the same time that she was producing a movie God. and she said, producing a movie is way harder than having a baby. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Good point of reference.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. I was like, well, damn. Okay. Uh, uh, as a man, I don't know what that means, but I'll take it yeah, right. But no, um, and, and and yeah, you know, and then there are like all these, you know, there are all these uh, things that you can be conditioned to believe. But I've come to find that making that film, and by the way, I was very keen on making this film at a very specific price point. I didn't want mm. to exceed a certain price point because my dream was always digital distribution, and you know the the response rate on so through social media is very unpredictable, mm-hmm. and so you know it, you usually bust on your average if you're expecting this huge turnout with a minimal marketing budget, and I just wanted to go about this in a way uh, to where we uh, were. Where there was a where we were using, utilizing the technology to the best of our ability
0: right right? right right right
1: so that we could produce the best quality project right mm-hmm. um, so that it was actually able to compete so if you look in, if you go to Apple's iTunes right now and you look the number one new release is our four hundred thousand dollar movie it's crazy and, and it's sitting right next to movies that were made for 10 20 30 40 50 million dollars now the thing that I want to point out about that is, but I was actually prepared to make that movie for a hundred thousand, and then mm-hmm. I was prepared to make it for one hundred and ninety-nine thousand, and then we attracted investors, and hence, you know, we were able to make it for more. Um, and each time, we just adjusted. I just adjusted the script, adjusted the script. Oh, we, we now we can do this. Now we can put this back in. But right. there's a great. Um, uh, I want to say his name is uh, yeah Mark Duplass' um, keynote speech at the, I think it was the 2016 South by Southwest um, film, festi- film Festival, you really need to hear what he says because it's the most accurate thing to my personal career um, that I've ever heard. And really? he, he takes, yeah, he takes a, when I say you, I'm just saying our audience, but you know he, he takes a quote from Tony Robbins, which is the, the Calvary's not coming. You know, I think a lot of people tend to lean on a project that they put so much hard work into and expect it to, like, turn around and blow up and change their lives. And you learn after being in the film industry for 20 years, you can't predict none of that. But, (laughs) you know, I think it's important that people see this because it's explaining to you that, yo, you go make that independent for $20. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's true. It's, it's, it's fascinating because at the end of the day, it's all about completing a movie. It's all about having a movie done. If you're directing a movie, it's all about putting something in the can and then showing that you can actually do a movie yeah. and it doesn't necessarily have to be the best movie ever made, but as long as it's good and you put it out, then your opportunities open up to you after that. So
1: it, it does. But even that, just like I was just the information I had gathered, I was like, this, this was my legitimate film school. This was my mm. I, I I get every I edited the film myself. This I didn't want to write the film. I didn't want to direct the film. I didn't I, I didn't want to do any of that. I was actually, it was insisted upon by my producers. We mm. hired a writer. After he did um, his outline, they were like, Rom, I'm telling you, bro, you're gonna regret it if you let someone else write it. They talked me into writing it. I was like, cool. Oh. Here's the dude I want to direct it. They were like, we talked to some people, they're like, nah, bro, come on, man. Seriously, I ended up having to direct it. Um, wow. Uh, pretty much every everything. I didn't want to edit it. I did not want to edit the film. My editor ended up getting a job um, on another project that was far more prestigious for HBO, and as mm-hmm. a result of that, I had no choice but to edit it. But I really wanted a woman to edit it because I wanted to, that sensitivity there, but um, just that that eye for vulnerability. But um, yeah. you know, I ended up having to do it myself. And uh, through that whole process, I learned a whole lot. And um, but it also made me understand where i'd like to be in the process and where i would prefer not to be i don't ever want to edit my own film again if i can help it
2: you know (laughs) it's a tough it's a tough gig man editing is like vicious i and i have the skills to edit my own stuff as well but i prefer to be working with someone else because you need that perspective you need that you need someone on the other side to tell you what's right. I can only imagine cuz you're in the pieces too. So that's yeah. got to be twice as difficult cuz you're examining your performance at the same time. I think
1: that being in the pieces was a blessing. And, oh, I'll, t- okay. and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because I wasn't seeing it through the monitor. When I looked at the scene it looked fresh. Oh, okay. You okay. Know? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, um uh and I I I would just say to anyone like if if you're going to, you know, make that $1,000 short or whatever, or write that script. You know, there's tons of festivals that you can submit it to. Um, there's Even if it's just a screenplay, you can still submit that screenplay to many festivals. And, you know, actors always come to me and they say, yo, man, how do I get started in acting? <laughs> hey, keeping it 100, I like to equate it to, like, losing your virginity. If you want it bad enough, you will figure it out. <laughs> you just will, and you know, getting that first piece of ass—it's the same thing. If you want it bad enough, you're gonna figure it out. But even further than that is that you—forgive um, me—I I lost my train of thought. But uh, I was making the point that even with—but it's the, it's the same thing, kind of uh, with—it's it's the same thing, kind of with filmmaking, where yeah. you know, if you want it bad enough. You're going to figure out a way to piece it all together. And the thing with it is I people say, how do you make it in acting? And I tell them one of the most underrated networks of acting is mm-hmm. acting class. And, mm-hmm. the, and, and the reason is because an acting class with working actors, and I don't mean they have to be on, you know, all, you know, they don't have to be all principals on a, on a, on a TV series, but if they're booking commercials... Or if they've maybe booked a few guest stars. They probably booked it because they have representation. Right. So, as an act, like, like to show their, their their clients that they are in support, sometimes those that representation will actually come and sit in on a class. Right. And they might they'll might notice you. But also, if you're good in a class, People will be like, and this would what happened to me, dude, you ain't got no representation, bro. Dude, you got to meet my agent, fam. You got to meet my manager. You ain't got no manager. You got to, you know, and people wanted to introduce me to their people. And so um, I think huh. it's the same thing in film. You submit that screenplay to, a, you know, to the festivals and it leads you to a network eventually. If if it's any good, or if people take note of it, it leads you to uh, you know a network that you might not have otherwise. Especially like we said, it's a lonely job to write and yeah. craft a script, and so you want that network. That you know, I remember Blake Snyder before he passed away. He mentored me on a lot of stuff. He's the guy who wrote Save the Cat, you know, and all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, me and the people from that class would read each other's screenplays. And give notes. One lived in San Francisco, one lived in LA, you know, we all oh, New York. We would, you know, it was a network of people that I wouldn't have had otherwise, you know. So Right,
2: right, right, right.
1: I just want yeah. to throw that out there that please don't make the mistake of of doing what I did when I lived in the hood, which was comparing everything that I did to what was happening in pop culture.
2: Oh, fascinating. Because,
1: because that was the extent of my education. Mm. Right? Really understand that there is a place for your $1,000 short. There is a place for your, you know, for your 150 page screenplay. There is a place for your 10 minute screenplay. There's a place for your 10 minute, uh, you know, experimental, experimental film. Just educate yourself on where those places might be.
2: Smart, man. That's good advice. That's really great advice. You know, I think a lot of people just don't consider that stuff that, uh, part of the process of being a filmmaker and saying that you're a director is actually just directing and being a filmmaker. And so it's, it's jumping that hurdle. It's getting into those steps and it's making stuff. And regardless of what you're doing, if you're doing something for television and you're getting paid big bucks, that's great. If you're doing stuff for yourself, you're still learning all these little tricks and and techniques that you're sticking away in your toolbox that you're later going to pull out that you need. So, you know, staying and it's tough because oftentimes especially when you're in development and you're you're, you're putting scripts out and you're pitching things like i i will find myself going months without directing something like almost a year without directing something and you're looking at it going like what the fuck have i been doing for a year jesus christ um you you have to get back into it and i'm actually saying this to myself you have to get into it again and start to shoot something and start to make something because it shakes the rust off those gears man and um it it uh puts you in the right mind if at, at its base level it's at least putting you back in the right mindset um yeah so I, yeah i mean it's it's, it's, it's
1: it's miserable for me because i gotta go shoot a show that's shooting 19 episodes there's no time to do anything like yeah one of the most i swear to you one of the most annoying things is the fact that since i've made that film I've been offered to write, uh, to direct, uh, an, an indie and I've been offered to write and direct the studio film and the, wow. stu- the people in the studio film are like, we will wait for you to get to your hiatus, but we'll need you to write it while you're filming your show. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I, I, in my head, I'm like, that's not how I do things. I really like to apply myself, uh, I just realized that my air condition is blowing and it might compromise sound quality so Dude, it's
2: all it's all good you okay. sound okay on our end. Okay
1: cool I just
2: gonna- I appreciate I appreciate the level of professionalism you have all the way around for this podcast. <laughs> it's been fantastic. Uh, but uh, no that's got to be frustrating. Yeah because you you know being on a show you got to learn your lines you got to you you you're committed to that character at that point and then how are you writing another script and getting committed into that no
1: a hundred percent and i got to be a dad and you know you know and then you know there's all these little things we have to do just for the for the camaraderie of the people on our set and for the showrunners and communicating with the writers you know um
2: yeah yeah, yeah you yeah, know yeah. yeah
1: but i i i love the process and um you know if you, if you want to go over some like specific questions in regards to process or whatever I'm completely cool you know and if if if, if this is more of a free flowing thing and you know you let me know what you need me this,
2: to do this this has been great let Thank me just you. say this this show is about conversation if we weren't in covid I'd probably be sitting down having a beer with you and having a conversation <laughs> it's that the it's isn't it it's it's what this show is all about um and uh like I love just subtly getting access to to things that you've learned, because there's no fucking method. There's no rhythm that we can follow. Like if you're someone that's younger and you're like, hey, look, I wanna be a director. I I can't hand you a system of notes and go, just follow these notes and you'll become a fucking director. There's no no rhythm to it. So at the end of the day, we're just looking for, to learn from someone else's experiences. And Mm -hmm. that being said, I'm incredibly envious of the experience that you've had being an actor and being able to study other directors work. Oh. That's fucking cool and really fascinating because uh, directors is a kind of a lonely position and and I've been lucky enough to be invited onto sets and see directors work, but oftentimes directors don't invite other directors to see them work because right. there's a sense of insecurity that's in there. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, I'm curious. What is some of the, you don't have to be too specific, but what is something that you've seen on set that a director's done that has completely changed the game for you? Have you, have you seen an experience and been like, Holy shit, this is amazing. Or, Oh my God, this is something that I, I'm never going to fucking do.
1: Um, I've I've had a little bit of both. Um, But uh, one thing that I saw that was really cool was in the, in the, in the, in the writer's room, I'm not in the writer's room, in at the table read, the director usually sits in on the table read.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And one time, this guy we ended up using a lot more, but he was like, um, at the end of the table read, he was like, Oh, I gave clapped, and he said he had some notes. But then he went actor by actor and was asking him, you know, is there anything that kind of tweaked you a little bit? Did there something? Mm-hmm. That sets a tone, bro. He did mm-hmm. that every single actor. And added it to his notes before he and the the showrunner continued their conversation. And every single actor walked out of the room being, I like him. Oh, my God. I like Rich. Rich is cool. And what ended up happening is we now approached the set with an attitude that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And um, that little shift can make all the difference, you know, (sighs) of whether or not you meet people who are going to be humble servants or divas could Mm -hmm. be that right there. And so I've just always, always made sure to say our film versus my film because of that guy, because of that guy. That's awesome. Yeah. And treat it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fact, that's how, um, you know, Oh, and um, another thing is I had uh, heard a director, And I've actually had directors do this to me, which I thought was really cool. So I want to get Regina Hall. Now, Regina Mm -hmm. Hall's a big star. Mm -hmm. And um, rather than go to her and say, hey, I got a script. I want you to do my script. I asked her for notes on the script.
2: Ah, smart.
1: And uh, and I told her, I said, you know, er, everything I write is with you you as the female lead. Everything. And so she was like, yo, what's wrong? She called me after she read it. and She's like, what's wrong with you, baby? You Okay. I was like, what? She goes, this came out of your head? I'm like, "Yep." Yeah, you want to talk to somebody, baby? Because cause you seem sick. You seem sick. And she's like, Romney, this shit is hilarious. This shit is hilarious. And she's like, I want to play this hood bitch. I want to play this hood bitch. And so um, she gave me notes on the script. She said, she should have more slang. She should have just as much slang as TJ. And she's so intelligent. She really picked up on the fact that I wrote these two characters as if they were two peas in a pod, the probation officer and the felon. But- yeah. They just ended up on different sides of the law. That was the whole dynamic between them. And um, she picked up on it right away, and her note was amazing. You need to give this girl much more slang. And it's true. The minute I did that, you just it, it became obvious that they really were two peas in a pod. And so um, that was how you know I got my – and I've seen directors do that, and I've had directors do that to me. So those are two Smart. things that really kind of changed the game for me. Um, Smart. Yeah.
2: Really cool, man. I appreciate you sharing that stuff. That is really cool. Really cool stuff. Yeah, definitely.
1: And, you know, I I, I also, uh, you know, there tends to be different personalities who are ADs. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been very conscious and I've learned over and over that you you don't want to hire an AD who sets the wrong tone. Oh, my God. Yeah. Even for them. Everybody gets treated equal. Everybody. Extras and all. Uh, You Mm -hmm. do that. Because my set consisted of forty-five, maybe fifty percent volunteers, Mm -hmm. so you can't have Mm -hmm. somebody walking around and treating people shitty Mm -hmm. when they're when they're out of labor love. These are my friends, it's my family, it's my daughter. These are people who contributed to the crowdfunding campaign, extras wanting to stick around, busting their behinds for this film, yeah, carrying heavy boxes, helping the grips because we had such limited manpower. You know, um, it's just important, especially with independent film.
2: Yeah, and, and the ad is the voice of the set and it's i i, d- I did a whole episode on, on on ading and um my ad who I've used for years i love him i love his there's there's two different types that i've worked with there's the ad who has uh, a sense of calm in his voice or her voice and they know that there is stress and there is a bunch of work for them to do but they're never, projecting that and then there's the other ad that you feel like is in the bathroom blowing coke and just screaming at people and those are the people that you don't you don't want on your fucking set um but uh the an ad should be on point should be aware should be because i lean on an ad consistently like where are we what what are we fucking doing right now like that's a big part of it for me um but then also they need to be that voice and the few projects that I've done that are really low budget that I've had to also keep schedule as well as be the director, so I find that uh, people get tired of hearing your voice. It just becomes tiresome. So, like if if the same person is giving them direction on a set, but they're also like, "Hey, how fast can you get this fucking thing done?" Then they there's just this uh, sense of just essentially getting tired of hearing your fucking voice. No, and so, and, and
1: and it sets the wrong tone. It just sets yeah. the wrong tone because um, look, it 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 doesn't need to be said. This the clock is ticking, you know, and every decision mm-hmm. is money. And being that you said that, I kind of feel like it's a perfect segue into the next thing I wanted to bring up, mm-hmm. w- which is that I can't speak for everybody, but a huge misconception is people look at the fact that I wore all these hats and I did this because it was a labor of love. Yes. I think it's important mm-hmm. to get this message out. But I did this shit to make money. And right. I've always aspired to, uh, you know, d- distribute, d- digitally distribute, maintain ownership of my project, which I did. And um, maybe this is an opportunity for me to kind of explain to the audience how I did it and how they can do it as well. Sure. Well, I come from music. I, I was a rapper at first and film t- tends to trail music by about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so what we ended up having happen in the music industry is that record labels went from finding a group that was unsigned, polishing them, setting them up with different producers in the studios, giving them sh- o- shows to open for bigger acts that were on the label, making, you know, making them attend things where they could kind of schmooge and maybe win over some other people who might want to work with them. That was the old school way. And mm-hmm. then I witnessed... I witnessed this transition where, shit, they just was like, you know what? That takes a lot of staff and costs a lot of money. Let me see that billboard. And they'd be like, who the hell is getting 137 spins a month in San Francisco with no deal? (laughs) Go find that person. And they basically call that person up. And that person will have built their audience and will have had their following, will be touring through the South, you know, on the merit of their own hard work and their own hustle. And then the, the label would say, well, look, man, we want to get in business with you. And that person, would, you know, that artist would be like, uh, well, we'll start talking. And mm-hmm. they actually had leverage. They didn't necessarily need. They were like big, little giants. They were like little, big giants, you know, mm-hmm. or big, little giants. I don't even know how to write that term. But the point is, is that they were, you know, they were seeing a decent return on their money. And as a result of that, they didn't have to relinquish as much ownership to be on a record label.
2: Uh, Right, 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 right.
1: Right? So Mm -hmm. um, most times back in those days, an artist went into the deal with absolutely no leverage but a dream. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: film is kind of the same way, where if you get 350 films in a film festival and they all get seen, if you're lucky, four of those films will actually get distribution. And if you're lucky, one of those four will actually make money. Right. And I I mean, look, I, I listen to every friggin' independent film podcast i can i've read all kinds of articles and you know i think that you know um that's daunting it's like hard to, to you know it, it's like god that hurts
2: yeah hard to swallow yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but
1: but it, but it's real and then on top of that these distribution deals they just rape you over the, they just they, they just rape you yeah and so Here's, a, here's something that was fairly serendipitous. I could have never predicted COVID-19, but because of the fact that I've never had this romantic, uh, uh, you know, idea of, oh, I'm going to have my movie in theaters, I didn't care about theaters. All I cared about was, how do I get a percentage of every transaction made for the purchase of my film? Right. And the way that my film is it's so raw i was afraid that people wouldn't be comfortable watching it in the theater anyway are you going to laugh out loud to a dude talking about a peekaboo right <laughs> and like what what it is is he it's like what he calls a peekaboo right he, he's just like fresh out of prison and the character's like smoking a cigarette and talking to the cameras like you know we got this thing in prison and what it is it's called a peekaboo. And what a peekaboo is, man, is, is when you really want to humiliate a motherfucker, you push your dick between your legs and make him blow you from the back. This way, when you come, you can shit in his face. Right? And like, I didn't know if people were going to be comfortable laughing at that shit in public about some dude getting shit. You know what I'm saying? So I made, right. it, I made the phone for people to watch on the I made it for people to watch. It's a pocket movie. You watch the shit on your phone in private, you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
2: <laughs> Uh, that's great, man. <laughs> Thanks, man.
1: And so that's how the character talks. And so I was like, um, rather than take a big upfront deal, what I decided to do was uh, use the distributor as a facilitator. So they would yeah. get us into the locations. They wouldn't spend a whole lot of money. They wouldn't give me any money upfront, but we would have what's called the first you know dollar gross, meaning we share in the first dollar made. Mm-hmm. And they took a much smaller percentage of the movie as a result of that. And also um, and also they weren't gonna put up a huge budget. But I, yeah. I was in a position to where one, I had some star power attached to my film, Regina Hall and Tammy Roman are pretty well known. Um, but I also had uh my name and I had a little I had a little money that I could create, I could put together my own marketing campaign.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Now, with all of that said, um, The point is, is that COVID-19 hits. Do you know how pissed off I would have been had I given up the lion's share of my film so that I could be in theaters only to find out that I couldn't be in theaters and have digital distribution pretty much only and a shitty marketing plan. Do you know what I would have lost my mind? Yeah. So it's very serendipitous. The tone of the game has changed now, where digital distribution for the near future is pretty much inevitable. So you don't have to relinquish the lion's share of your project because most distributors, independent distributors, ain't putting that much money into the marketing of your film anyway. And Mm. we're all rediscovering how to go about it because we have to rely so much more on digital. So... And don't get me wrong, conventional marketing is good, but ultimately you're using that conventional marketing to steer them to a digital, some kind of VOD or you know, transactional plat- platform, right? So, right, right, right? so I'm sitting here going, there's an opportunity for all of us to really take advantage of just that. And the way the place that I feel is though independent film is suffering the most from every friggin' independent film podcast, if independent film interview. Inde- independent film article that I've read is independent film really lacks in the mm-hmm. world of marketing. Yeah, and so we have to figure out, we have to learn to borrow from other platforms. Even these people you call corny marketing gurus on the you know on their podcasts and marketing gurus on their YouTube channels, a lot of that stuff I've actually put into effect and it has paid off
2: yeah no there's a lot of like there's there's like the future there's a bunch of different really great podcasts out there and uh, services out there that teach you how to do that sort of stuff yeah no I completely agree dude
1: they do and I don't even I don't even I don't even listen to like film when it comes to independent film talking about marketing I am real I don't really pay attention to that shit I'm listening to people talking about how they launched their eyewear um you know product or how they launched their you know their marketing company or how they launched you know their uh their online uh, uh, autism educational center because that type of marketing can be applied to almost anything and it's Mm. just a lot more savvy than what filmmakers are talking about just keeping it real and so if you if if you don't have stars perhaps you have a topical narrative Mm -hmm. right Right, So like I just mentioned autism, maybe you can, you can get your film out to all the autism centers across the world and if they really believe it, they can champion your film because they're like, this dude's saying it, this dude's saying it, he's put it in film form uh, so you can service one another. You provide them with content that their audience can use and they will help promote it because they want their audience to hear the message and you've put it in a way that, um, that they can. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't have that, maybe you have uh, uh, controversy. Right, right, right. And it's a big one. Yeah. That's a big one, you know. And so, if you can figure out, sit down and really strategize, and come up with like some real good marketing points, some good talking points that may be political or just social commentary or it, very specific to you know something that's happening right now, um, you could potentially trigger a lot of of interest. And you just you you basically hire a publicist for you know two three four five thousand dollars you know and mm-hmm. now you can do month to month stuff maybe even 1500 a month and they put together a press release for you and get all that stuff knocked out for you and you're using their channels and their connections to get that message out you'd be surprised how many people turn around and, and, and take interest so yeah. these are just some of the like the, the real real basics one of the formulas that i use most consistently
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is I will make something really topical, like for for this project. How I raised the money for it, even was I made a video called "The Racket of Racism," in which I explained how racism is actually how it ben. It, it, it's it's more so about economics than anything else, and right. in, in the United States. And that video was 19 minutes long, but it got like seven and a half million views on 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 um, Facebook. That's crazy. Yeah, and now keep in mind Facebook's sketchy because you know. Three seconds to fifteen seconds could be rated as a view on Facebook, but the, right. proof, the proof is in the pudding. Every person that commented, I went and commented, and or I just had a friend help me comment, or I hired like a virtual assistant to help comment, and I gave them like a list of like fifty different stock comments that felt really authentic that i was using and then i would have them copy and paste them where appropriate so that mm-hmm. you know i can make more use of my time but every last comment steered people to the crowdfunding campaign and we raised like eighty nine thousand dollars from that one video
0: that's um, great dude
1: yeah thank you and i just did it again when i, I did a video called um it, this one wasn't as big but i did a video called uh like the infiltration of white supremacists into law enforcement all the way up to modern day. And it's, it's currently at like 600,000 views on Facebook. But once again, it's generated its interest and it's steered people to the, you know, to signing up to be notified when the movie comes out and all that other stuff. So these things are done for nothing, like literally mm-hmm. nothing. Um, even our even our distribution team was like, yeah, we can't really compete with Romney's interaction with his audience, even though we are running ads and stuff like that. Rom's interaction with the audience is is, is a different thing cool, you can have that too. And I understand that I have a bigger following than a lot of people who may be pursuing independent film. But nonetheless, if you put out if you put out relevant quality content and you mm-hmm. make it free and people begin to catch on to the fact that you are actually adding value, they'll bend over backwards for you. And that's pretty mm-hmm. much what I've been experiencing.
2: That's great advice. That's really cool, man. That's yeah. really cool. And I'm, I'm happy to see that it's working. I'm happy yeah. to see that it's working for you, dude. No, um, thank you. Thank you. I mean, w- we'll know for sure on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, fingers crossed, you know, with all that. Um, d- look, this has been, we're, we're, we're sort of kicking at the end of the episode now. And this has been just such a pleasure. It's been such a wonderful experience sort of sitting down and having this conversation with you. Um, and uh, thank you so much for sharing as much as, as, as you've shared on the show. I really uh-huh. appreciate it.
1: Thank you. And I feel like we hit it off right out the gate. I'm kind of I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad um, that uh, we were able to touch on, you know, some of those really, really meaningful things. But I'm also glad that I felt like we did a really thorough uh, breakdown of sharing our experiences in filmmaking. And God willing, man, we inspire just a few more voices to just really just go do the damn thing. Make that $20 short, man, and get it in a festival, please.
2: Yeah, dude, right there with you, my man, right there with you. Um, before we let you go, uh, do you want to like, what, what sort of promotions do you want to do for this? Like when's the movie, is the, has the movie dropped yet or does it come out Friday? Right. Is that, is yeah, that the movie comes
1: know? out Friday. It comes out Friday, July 31st. It'll be on Amazon. It'll be on Google play. It'll be on iTunes, Apple TV, pretty much any VOD platform voodoo. It's on, it's in draft house right now. Nice. Um, yeah. Um, uh, draft house on demand. Uh, well, wait, wait, I, I think I'm just making shit up now. <laughs> but you know what? We but I'm looking check. forward to it. <laughs>
2: okay. Yeah. I'm looking yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'll be watching it. Um okay. dude, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh and um I wish you nothing but the best as you move forward with this stuff.
1: Likewise friend. to you too. Likewise to you as well, man. And um hopefully we get to do this again.
2: Anytime you want to come back, you're more than welcome on the show, my friend.
1: Okay, the movie's called Tijuana Jackson, Purpose of a Prison. And it comes <laughs> out on Friday. And I really need you to take your ass over there and watch the shit. And by over there, we said iTunes, Apple TV. We said Google Play. We said Amazon. We said, uh, 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 what else did we list? Uh, uh, Fandango Now. And pretty much any VOD platform, man. Even your local cable. Just go get the movie and check it out. I promise you you're going to laugh. I promise you you're going to rewind it. Because you're gonna laugh over other jokes, I promise you.
2: <laughs> we'll make it easy for you guys. We'll put Liam to work. He'll put links underneath the episode, so click on links and uh, we'll get you. We'll get you right. Amen. There. All right. Thank you, my bro. So that's today's show. I uh, hope you guys really enjoyed uh, listening to Romney talk. I love the guy. I mean, it's the first time that I've actually met him. Virtually met him. And it sucks that we're in fucking COVID because I'd probably be able to sit down and have beers with the guy and really talk this stuff out. But uh, I really, really respect uh, his his angle into the business. And I really respect his passion for it. Um, and that's something that uh, I'm more than happy to showcase on this show. Something that I'm more than happy to advertise are filmmakers that are incredibly passionate about this. And this guy has a respect level for the process. And you can hear it. Do you guys hear it when you listen to the show? So many actors have egos. So many directors have egos. So many people come at this game. uh, Because of how hard and how long it takes to get to the top, they feel like that they deserve the fucking thing. And they feel like they're the best person on the planet. Um, And they're really hard people to digest and be around. And it's completely obvious that he is not that. um, Which is awesome. And hopefully someday I'll be able to work with him because he sounds like he's a really fun guy to be around um I hope you guys enjoyed the episode I hope you guys learned a little bit about um, how to make a movie these days and um, got some insight into directing I definitely did some there's some stuff I wrote down in there that I'm gonna use that I liked um and that's what I love about this show is I get to learn right up there with you guys you know this episode will make me a better director Okay, how about that? This one will make me a better director, and I know it'll make you a better director if you learn from it. Um, So, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Talk about ego, there it is. (laughs) Mm. So in the meantime, as always, thanks for following the show. Hope you guys are appreciating it. We have a bunch of crazy episodes on the horizon. It's always so tough, because I know what's coming. And I can't really say it yet because who knows if it falls apart. But we got some fucking wacky shit coming down the pike. Uh, so stick around. I hope you guys are going to be fucking excited about it. Um, <clears throat> and um, things are still going good on our front. A uh, lot of advancements with uh, the movie development stuff. You know, fingers crossed, everybody. In the next week or so, keep your fingers crossed hard for us. We'll just say that. And um, as always, I love you guys. Thanks for listening to the show and I will see you next Tuesday.